Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now fell in love to a fell in love with you. No, no, what a good time was, so I had a good time with you. Didn't want to get the feeling, didn't want to get right, and the music's got it out for when the music hits, I feel no pain at all. You know! Gene, how are you? I'm great, Matt. How are you, my friend? Good to talk to you. I'm doing all right. Life's been better. I'm not going to lie. It's been, obviously, the year itself has been challenging, but the last couple of weeks in particular for me have been, yeah, yeah, just difficult, man. I moved back home to stay with my mum and and kind of alleviate the financial stress of London living and was looking forward to coming home. And unfortunately, she has bipolar disorder. And when I arrived back home, she seemed like she was really in the throes of a, you know, quite a serious breakdown. And so for the last few days, it's kind of been getting gradually worse and worse. And then we we admitted her into hospital last night. Uh, I'm so sorry. And then she's already been discharged. So 
I don't really know what's going on because she certainly wasn't ready to be and well enough to be. Um, but yeah, we'll have our chat and then I'll be able to figure out what's what's going on. But yeah, it's just been it's been crazy. So yesterday I went out. I felt the need, the urge to go bar crawling in the day. As sometimes this is the only solution. And so I called up my good friend, who I I know you know as well, because she sends her love, um, mm-hmm. Mo- Monique Powell from Save Ferris. Oh, she- lovely. She's no stranger to to mental health stuff herself, and so she's been a great friend to me throughout all of it. But yeah, she asked me to send her regards onto you and uh, and say hello because it's been a while, I gather, since you two last saw each other. But you go way it back has. way back to the the early K Rock days, I imagine. Yes, well, not early K Rock days, but certainly early Say Ferris days. Yes, we were you know we were playing her before the major label, and uh, she's wonderful and so unbelievably talented. And I'm so happy to hear that she's well. So, does she live in Birmingham? How did you? How did she happen to be around? So she. The funny story is this will be an exclusive to my listeners. Uh, I did a tour with Monique <laughs> last year, and mm-hmm. it was a package bill. It was less than Jake Goldfinger and save ferris so it was like a perfect mid-90s third wave of scar tour yeah terrific i was friends with monique before i kind of helped get her on that tour and then she'd recently parted ways with her husband and she was uh, i guess freshly on the market if you will and i introduced her to a good friend of mine who lives in birmingham and they hit it off and they've since that day really have kind of been inseparable and he was going out a lot to see and stay with her in los angeles and then i think like a lot of people i'm sure you've got friends back there who you know are maybe in the process of getting out because it seems like right now la is one of the worst places to be and it seems like the whole well the whole state of california in some cases but certainly la and certainly hollywood a lot of people are just hightailing it out of there and she was well if the uh if the coronavirus doesn't get you, the wildfires will. I mean, that state is in a world of hurt right now. By the way, how great does it feel? Because I have a couple of relationships that I've played matchmaker on. Isn't it such a wonderful feeling when you make an introduction like that and it works out? And you just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for something significant. It's really kind of like a great feeling, right? It's one of my favorite things in the world is to matchmake people. And when it works out, it's, as you say, it's so rewarding and so sweet to see people that you care about come together and improve each other's lives. And they've been, I guess, through, you know, quite an intense honeymoon period because as soon as they really started dating, the world was thrown upside down. And so yeah. they've really helped each other through this whole time. And it's been beautiful to watch that relationship blossom. Yeah. And I, I take great pride in my role in it. Well, I'm very much looking forward to two years from now when they're in a, a terrible divorce and somehow you're <laughs> to blame because you're the asshole who put them together. <laughs> it's fair play, you know, if it goes the other direction as well. It's always a concern, isn't it? You always think, if this goes south, I don't want to lose either of you as friends. You can do what you want to each other, but I need to remain a neutral party in all of this. Yeah, that's a tough thing when people break up and if there are circumstances where it's so violent that you have to decide which side you're on. That is, that's tough. That's very uncomfortable for sure. I, I did a podcast recently with Gavin Rosdale from Bush. and Oh, nice. I didn't want to ask him about him and Gwen because, you know, that's that's a very kind of publicized split and, you know, very personal. And so I didn't want to go there to salt the interview, but he actually kind of alluded to it himself because I was asking him about Shirley Manson from Garbage who had, had done some guest vocals on one of his solo albums. And I was like, are you and her still friends? And he said, well, actually, I feel like Shirley is one of the people that I lost in the divorce fire. And she kind of, she picked Team Gwen. And so I sort of lost her as a friend. 
You will enjoy this, uh, Matt. Here's a little bit of a rock and roll history. I was in the room when Gavin Rosdell and Gwen Stefani met one another. Wow. Yeah, so you're to happened. blame. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna, I can't take the credit or the blame. I just happened to be there. It happened because both bands were on the bill at the radio station that I used to work for, K-Rock in Los Angeles, at one of our concerts. I can't remember whether it was the, the Summertime Weenie Roast or the Acoustic Christmas December show, but that's where they met, was backstage in each other's dressing rooms uh, at that show. And, you know, they, they fell very deeply in love very quickly and had a very long you know, relationship and happy marriage and children and the whole thing, but it's just, it's so nice. And it's something we've, you know, we've made note of when we've seen each other over the years. It's just, a, it was a real special thing to see, see blossom like that, you know? That's amazing. That's a great piece of history. Did you see the sparks flying from the get-go? Well, uh, I can't say that I did, but they were very smiley and they were very happy to meet one another. And, you know, let's face it, they're both not only ridiculously talented, but impossibly beautiful. Both of them are so gorgeous that yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at all if both of them had a little bit of a crush on the other, because who didn't back then in the mid nineties, you know, I mean, they were, they, uh, who wouldn't, but uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I think sometimes, and, you know, you've had a storied career through lots of different uh, jobs and radio stations and podcasting and events. You just, you stop and think, back on all of the stuff that you've been lucky enough to be history, great gigs that you've seen or records that you've heard made or got an advance on or were there when it was recorded or there when it was written or something or I don't know. There's just so it just being a tiny part of this rock and roll music that we love so much. Just, you know, it just makes us, I mean, I don't know what guys like you and I would do if we were too far removed from the music business. It's such an important makeup for guys like us, but you just feel so lucky to have been a little bit of a witness to history. And I certainly had that. I mean, being, at such an influential radio station for 30 years and seeing just everybody come through those doors and just being part of so many stories was just, uh, I mean, I, I know how unbelievably blessed I was. And there were a lot of people more talented than I who would have been, you know, better suited to that job. And I just got really, really lucky that I was able to stumble into that job. Well, I've been learning through the process of lockdown, really what you're saying there, how important not just the work is and the craft and obviously the income and the financial security, but the lifestyle that comes with it. And I've really noticed a hole in my life, a genuine gap and a, a loss that I feel like I've grieved for this community that I'm a part of. And so much of my life is made up of these live events and festivals and face-to-face -face interviews and these, yeah. inter these interactions and connections that give my life so much meaning. It's been a huge period of, of loss and readjustment over the last six months. It's been a crazy time. And I know we probably both follow a lot of musicians on social media and you can just feel the aching for them to be able to perform again in front of a crowd. And I think we're taking baby steps, at least in the UK right now. It seems like that Sam Fender show the other day and a couple of others that we've seen where they've managed to figure out a socially, I just don't know financially if those socially distanced events are going to work out for the venues just because capacity is so limited. But people are definitely trying, you know, I mean, I, I think we're, we're getting closer to that day. I think we're a long way away from going to see a Wembley Stadium show. <laughs> but I think things are moving in the right direction, don't you? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think it'll happen when it needs to. You know, I don't think that you can rush this because of obviously the, the health and the safety of everybody being paramount. And I do know that a big problem for promoters and agents and organizers at the moment is the insurance and the impossibility of getting these events insured. And I do think that yeah. even when, you know, regulations are, are laxed a little bit, they'll be able to put on shows like legally. But whether or not the logistics will lend themselves, because at the moment, I think they're being told, oh, you can book a show, but you can only really announce it like a week or so in advance. And that, as we both know, is not how, you know, the live music industry works, because that's way too much of a gamble for everybody involved. Yeah, everybody's guessing right now. And there are so many judgment calls that are being made that are easy to second guess. I mean, the fact that pubs can be open, but they can't put football on TV because they don't want people to yell. I mean, yeah, yeah. You just you wonder if they're just I, I mean, I guess we know they are just human beings and they really are just making it up as they go along. But it's hard to feel a lot of confidence in what's happening, isn't it? Well, let me ask you this. I hope you don't mind. You're the first person I've had on the show that I'm led to believe has actually had the dreaded coronavirus. You had it pretty early on, right? I had it in May. First week of May is when I got it. Yes. How would you describe the experience of being sick with that illness? Would not recommend, Matt. Um, <laughs> 10 out of 10 would, would not, not recommend. Would not recommend. Here's what I'll say about that. I, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have gotten it, and I um, consider myself extremely lucky that it wasn't worse because I see, you know, people who have, you know, besides the many who have died, look at the people who have debilitating symptoms months after they quote unquote have been cured of the thing or have gotten past it. And I don't have any of that. I feel like I'm back to full strength. So I know how lucky I am. Um, It was the sickest I've ever been in my life. There's no question about that. Um, I did not have a great deal of respiratory distress as many people did. I didn't have trouble breathing, but I was incredibly fatigued, winded by sitting up even. Uh, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you have, most people have had a flu at one time in their life that was so bad that they couldn't get out of bed. Uh, That's what this was like for about eight days, where if you did stand up, that was all you could do for a few hours. Try to take a shower and you're out for the whole rest of the day. I mean, you're just so weak. So I had a very, very, very high fever, uh, very bad heat rash all over my body and extreme fatigue. And as I said, it was the sickest I've ever been in my life. And I was, and even even saying that, I know how unbelievably lucky I was because so many have had it so much worse. So I did, uh, you know, I did come out of it, did recover, got slowly regained my strength, and I'm doing fine now. the uh, The downside is, you know, when the opportunity presented itself for me to head down to the NHS and get my plasma tested for antibodies, I was really hoping at least there'd be some benefit and that I'd be able to contribute, donate that for cures or at least attempting cures, but I didn't have sufficient antibodies for it. And I guess uh, most people don't, but uh, some do, and they are. there is some promising research in that direction. But I, I will tell you this about the coronavirus too, Matt, is that my wife and I took it very seriously. We locked down a couple of weeks before the nation did. Our, our lockdown date here at our house in central London was the uh, 8th of March. Wow, yeah. And from that, that was early, yeah. And from that moment on, we wore masks. And, and many times gloves religiously. I mean, we were those people who wouldn't touch the mail when it dropped through the slot for a couple of days. We wiped down all of our groceries that we had delivered. I mean, we really took it very, very seriously because I didn't want to get sick and my wife has some pre-existing health conditions and I very much feared her getting sick. 
And then I still got it a couple of months after that. I still got it. And it's so baffling to me, even though I was being so careful, I still got it. So even now, when there are so many people who are kind of throwing caution to the wind and are not bothering with the mask, I mean, I was on a tube today and about, I don't know, 30% of the people weren't wearing masks on the tube, even though it's required. Um, I'm still very diligent about that because I know that I could get it again. And I do not want to go through that again. And it's just so frustrating because I feel like if people really bore down and took it seriously, if everybody or almost everybody took it seriously, I really do think we could be past this thing in a couple of months. I think the numbers would fall so low, like what happened in Australia, where they ended up getting the, the you know the the people who had new cases under 100 and then under 50 and then under 40, and then eventually they eliminated it for more than three months. They didn't have a single case in Australia or New Zealand, if I recall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we we have that potential to do that. We're just not taking it seriously enough. You can't turn on the news here on a Monday and not see reports of a 300-person rave that happened in a, some neighborhood across the UK. I mean, there are people who just think they're, they're indestructible. Young people in particular think it's not that bad, but there are, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that there are people who are completely healthy with no pre-existing conditions and they're 35 and they still get it and die. So I just wish people would take it really, really seriously because it's a, it's a bad deal, man. Well, I'm glad that you made it through and that you made a recovery and you're here with us and fighting fit. And I presume you've still been doing your daily duties on podcast radio, which is where we got to, to first meet a couple of months back. Yeah, I'm still doing that. Um, you know, we can talk career a little bit because I do feel, as you do, that I am underemployed right now, which is a disturbing feeling. Uh, for someone who had a, you know, who worked full time for so many years, it's weird to not have a full time job now. I am doing part time at Podcast Radio, and for folks who don't know, it's a station on DAB that's in London, in Manchester, in Surrey, and in Glasgow, and it also streams on the internet, obviously through the website or the app. And it's a station that plays podcasts, and it has a regular schedule of podcasts, and new ones are introduced each week. It's kind of a neat idea for people who are overwhelmed with how many choices there are. You know, once you've listened to Matt's podcast, you go, what do I listen to next? And maybe you don't have a recommendation from a friend. Well, this is a way you just punch into the station and see what's on. And a lot, I've been turned on to a lot of really good podcasts as a result of it. But um, I'm a pod jock, so what I do is – segments in between the podcasts. So I'll come out of a 25-minute podcast and I'll do a story on something that's in the news or something that's of interest to me or something that I think is funny, and then I'll throw it to the next podcast, just like a music radio DJ would do with songs. But I also, and one of the things I really enjoy about it is I'm able to interview tons of people. That's how I interviewed you is because we were playing your podcast on podcast radio. And I've interviewed probably 20 other podcast hosts that whose podcast we play or just podcasts that are interesting to me. And that is just really, really fun. I've really enjoyed kind of getting into the podcast community. But like I said, I do feel underemployed. I, I sure would like to find some more work. I knew it was going to be a real challenge when I moved to the UK. But uh, I don't know, Matt. You know, I, I, I knew that I had a few strikes against me when I came here because I haven't lived in country for a long time. And I do have this dumb American accent. And I knew that you know there were a lot of very talented broadcasters in this country who would be looking for work as well, and how am I going to jump the queue? But I thought with my credentials and being in two Hall of Fames and stuff, I might at least get some interviews. But um, it hasn't worked out that way, and I, I think a lot of it has been, you know, I think the pandemic really put a dent in in all of our livelihoods, and there weren't exactly a lot of networking opportunities. You couldn't just call somebody up and invite them out for coffee anymore. Those those, those days 
haven't existed for a while. So I'm a, I'm a little bit stuck, a little bit stuck right now. I need help, Matt. What do you got for me? I hear you, mate. And I mean, my relationship with radio is so bittersweet. Like yourself, I fell in love with the format so early on and I'm still in love with the whole craft and the, the artistry of it all and the medium and, and everything about it. But when I had my time on Kerrang! Radio, I was only 27 when I was let go from that station and then they went to like an online-only format. And ever since that day when I did my last show on Kerrang!, I looked around at the industry and where else I could go to work and I just didn't see a lot of avenues and options. And that was then, this was in 2013. And after that, I spent about really a year just sort of kicking around thinking my life's over before it's even started. And then I moved to London. I did a year's stint on this very short-lived station called Team Rock. And that just, you know, that went south. The whole thing kind of went bust and kaput. And since then, that was 2014, March, I think was the last time I was like on the air, as it were, hosting a show. And I just see, I see less and less opportunity in the industry, which is really why I started doing this podcast so i guess my obvious suggestion to eugene would be start a podcast you've got the connections you could yeah, get a guess i've um you know i've i've definitely given a lot of thought to that and, and i will say you're absolutely right that the opportunities are fewer and fewer this year 2020 more than ever not just because of the pandemic but this is the year the further reduction of the bbc local stations happened and hundreds of presenters were put out of work because they just decided to network. Hey, let's put Greatest Hits Radio across the country and just yep. get rid of all those local shows, and, you know, in cities like Bristol and places like that, which is insane. It's the it's the exact opposite of what radio should be doing. Give people a reason to turn on the radio. Give them something that's unique and that's local and that's interactive. All the things they used to do that made radio great. I'm sure you and I both kind of mourn the old days of radio. Um I've thought a lot about doing a, a podcast, and you know, I I hear in my social media from fans of my old show that I was on called Kevin and Bean, you know, that they're willing to pay for it. I know you, you know, you've thanked effusively your Patreon uh, subscribers uh, in recent uh, in recent months in particular, and I get offers all the time. Hey, tell me when and where, and I'm I'll I'm happy to pay. So that's certainly an option to do. I guess um, you raised something I mean, interesting there, uh, Gene. I'd love to just touch on quickly is this this sure. approach to radio in the UK, at least, of networking and just you know standardizing and just putting this basic personality less blanket content out there like i think that's why podcasting has grown so much is because the radio industry has gone we don't want individuals we don't want on-air personalities we want 20 second links if that we don't want any as we say local or specialized content and they've just kind of denied their listeners all of that and i think that's what's really fed into the massive growth of podcasting and long form interviews and free form shows. Like I think people really want that now more than ever. And because they're not being serviced it by the radio industry, they are switching to podcasts. And, you know, so many people listen to podcasts now over well, even music, let alone even over the radio. You're a thousand percent correct. And the other thing that's frustrating for me, and I'm sure you've had this same thought is exactly what you're saying is the industry giving up on young people because young people are not going to go to the radio for music because look at all the places that they can get music. What they can't get at Spotify or at Tidal or at Apple Music is guys like Matt Stocks who are passionate about bands and passionate about music and passionate about life and experiences and, and 
does a compelling job of sharing that and taking phone calls and doing interviews and doing all the things that make you, you know, unique. That's what they can't duplicate anywhere else. And radio, you're right, is closed down to people like you. You know, you look at, uh, you know, I don't want to diss anyone in particular because it's a small industry, but I mean, look at Greg James is a perfect example, who's a fine young man, and I'm sure there are people out there who like him. But what do you really get out of that show? What do you really get out yeah. of listening to the BBC Radio 1, you know, which at one time was the most important show in Europe? <laughs> and you just get a guy who's just smiling and, you know, giving you the time and giggling about Little Mix. You know, I don't think I just I, I can't understand how that's the best we can do. I, I don't listen to Radio 1 at all. I find all their personality on air personalities there just very vacuous and uninteresting and well, insincere. I'm sure they'd be happy to hear that because we're not the target <laughs> audience. So they would think, hey, we're doing something right if guys like Gene and Matt don't care because we're, we're not for them. <laughs> well, we're know? not the mainstream, are we? And we're not popular culture. And have you found as a, and I don't want you to take this in the wrong way, but have you found as an older gentleman that it's harder as well because everybody is quite youth orientated and you know, in a lot of cases, ageist in this industry as well like oh you've done your time that's it your your period in the sun has been and gone and we're after the next hot young thing well i do notice when i see people get hired when i you know because i do subscribe to all of the trades and read all of the industry news i do see that every time a new announcer is hired or publicized advertised it's always somebody who's about 25 it's generally somebody who's been on reality television or is a member of a pop group. Yep. And those are the, the people are hiring per, those kinds of quote unquote personalities rather than people who really are interesting or have anything to say. Gosh, I feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot by saying all of this out loud, Matt. I see what you've done to me is you've painted me into a corner where I will be essentially unemployable because people will listen to this and go, hey, Grandpa, you're just telling us to get off your lawn. And I don't mean it to sound like that because I, I love the medium of radio so much, and I, I do think this should be there should be room for lots of different kinds of people and different kinds of shows. I just don't know what happens when, you know, Bob Harris, who I adore, just celebrated his 50th anniversary at BBC, and he does the very popular country music show, and I just think he's terrific. When a guy like Bob Harris retires or dies, you know, he doesn't get replaced by somebody as good as Bob Harris. You know what I mean? Yeah. He gets re- he gets replaced by, you know, by some, probably some country music star who's 28 years old just because he has a quote-unquote name, not because he's the best person to do a radio show. And that's what concerns me, as I do, I do think we're, we're watering down what made radio great for so long. Well, I know exactly what you need to do, Gene. You need to just start this podcast. You need to just jump on board and, and get it on. You've got your listenership and fan base inbuilt. You've already told me they're willing to part with money. And mm-hmm. I don't know what's holding you back, my friend. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what's holding me back. And by the way, it's a very, I mean, we all hope that we're going to just flip on a switch one day and become Adam Carolla or Joe Rogan, you know, both guys that I've known for decades. And, you know, they certainly have made empires out of their jobs. But what's what's holding me back, I think, and this may be stupid of me, is I took a break from America on purpose. I lived there for many, many years, although I'm a British-born citizen. And wanted to come back home. I consider London my home. This is where I was born. I lived here twice as a youth. And I'm so happy to be back. And I'm trying to look forward, Matt. 
And I feel like doing a podcast and kind of intentionally going back to the well of my previous audience, as grateful as I am for them and as much as I enjoyed doing that show for so long, I feel like in a way it's it's going backwards. I hear you. Does that make sense to you? Like I hear I, you, yeah. I came to, I came to England to You're not ready to give up yet. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of came to England for, you know, as I say in my, my social media bio, you know, Hall of Fame radio career in America, but now I'm back in London for Act 2. And I would like Act 2 to be something here in Britain. You know, and maybe the answer, you know, maybe we split the difference here, Matt, and what the answer is, is I find some nice British uh, presenter that I can team up with. And that way I have, you know, I, I'm doing something new that's not the same as the old show. And maybe that person brings a little bit of an audience, too, to give us kind of something to start with. And maybe I try to develop something that way. Uh, it's just going to be a question of me getting out and meeting more people, like, you know, find some like-minded people that uh, that would enjoy that, have this similar sense of humor and interest and things like that. But I, I think there's, you know, I, I think there's room for plenty of, plenty more podcasts. You know, I don't think we're anywhere near the saturation point. You know, look at the percentage of People of the audience, uh, you know, the, the public who have never listened to a podcast, there's a lot of potential audience out there. So there's room for more good shows, that's for sure. You know, people always talk about how there's too much television, but if somebody creates, you know, a, a, I Must Destroy You or something else that just comes out and people are like, oh my God, this is so great, people will find it, people will watch it, people will enjoy it. You know, there's always room for quality. And yet, quality rises to the top, I found, even if it's a slow burn sometimes. Like with my show, I often, yeah. I often think, God, I wish it was bigger than it is at this stage because I've been doing it for nearly four years now. But, but you, have hardcore, you have hardcore fans, though, that are always with you, that are always excited, you know, and it's hard to beat. I mean, it's, I think in some ways it's better to have a smaller, passionate audience than it is to have a much bigger audience of people who really don't give a crap. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. There's a, there's a famous, uh, well, he's not overly famous, but he's in certain circles famous. He has a great podcast called Let There Be Talk. His name's Dean Del Rey. He's a comedian. And he has this phrase where it's like, all you need is a thousand hardcore true fans. And you can mm -hmm. exist as like a DIY creative independently with that number. As long as there's a thousand that are hardcore that will support and buy everything you do. That's, yeah. That's kind of all you need. Yeah. I got to check out. I, I don't know that podcast, so I definitely have to check it out. Hey, speaking of podcasts, um, you had you did talk to Fred Durst recently? No. So what I do with the Patreon page is mm -hmm. I have every interview I've ever done on file. And so with the Patreon page, I upload a new archive radio interview each week. And then that's the bonus Patreon oh, podcast. Gotcha. Okay. So, the, so the chat with Fred was from like 2011. Um, and I've never interviewed him again since, but I'd absolutely love to because I feel like I'm sure you've interviewed him and maybe you can tell me your thoughts on him. But I feel like he's one of those guys. He's very maligned. A lot of people like to pick on him and make fun of him. But when I spoke to him, and I'm sure he's even more so that way now, he seemed like a very considered and humble and sweet and just like a really good down-to-earth guy. I'd love to get the chance. We only spoke for about 10 minutes. You know how those kind of radio interviews course, work. Yeah. It, it would always be 5 to 10, 15 at the max minutes. So it wasn't anything like the long forms that I do now. But in that short time, I got a real read and a gauge on his character, and he seemed just like a great bloke. Have you spent much time I, in his company over the years? Yes, I have uh, many times over the years. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the most remarkable nights of my life uh, I, I, I'll get to hanging out with Fred Durst in 2019 in a moment, but one of the most remarkable nights of my life 
we never could have known it at the time is that Kevin, my former radio partner, and I were in New York City as we used to go every September for the MTV Video Music Awards. We would go and broadcast for a week, and it would give us the opportunity to get a lot of guests that were not only in for that for that event, but also people who lived in New York City that we normally wouldn't be able to get in studio because our show was in Los Angeles. And one of the things that we did that week is we went down to the video shoot of Limp Biscuit doing the theme song for, at the time, the latest Mission Impossible movie. And you may remember, they did a killer version of the Mission Impossible thing. Take yeah, Take a Look Around was the song. Remember it well. so good, Matt. And you may not remember the video, but the video included a, a, sh- a shot on the top of Tower One of the World Trade Center. Of course. One year to the day before it fell. Wow. We're on the roof of the World Trade Center, which is just, as you can imagine, it's the, you know, one of the tallest buildings in the world. It was just a beautiful, beautiful night with Limp Biscuit watching them go through their, their paces, recording this song with the helicopter coming and landing on top of the building. And it was just so cool. And honestly, you know, who in a million billion years could have ever imagined that that building would be gone in a year? You know, it's just, uh, you know, we all, all, many of us who have, been lucky enough to spend time in New York, have memories of that building, but that one was certainly an indelible one. And we kept in touch with Fred over the years and with other members of the band. And just last year, our summer concert, uh, the K-Rock Weenie Roast is what they call it. I don't remember exactly what the circumstances were, but I think somebody fell out of the bill, which happens sometimes. You know, somebody got sick or something. I don't remember. But we started thinking, who would be great to get on the bill? Like, who would be a really fun summer 2019 rock and roll band we're doing it down at the beach in southern california in you know in like june and july and then for some reason we said how you know it's been a while but how not to make a stage joke it's been a while but how fun <laughs> would it be to see limp biscuit again because they had been touring and the numbers that they were drawing were unbelievable i mean they were playing like 10,000 people and i think there were a lot of people particularly alternative people who kind of wanted to put Limp Biscuit in that Nickelback basket as being too uncool. Yep. But I'm telling you, we called Fred and he said, Hey, I, you know, he was super cool about it. He's like, you know, we haven't been in K rock in a while, but you know, that sounds like it would be really kind of a fun night. So we ended up coming to a deal. You know, he worked it out with our people and whatever. So Limp Biscuit played the show and they closed it down and they, killed and i think people even people who hung around because they thought they were going to make fun of limp biscuit oh this is going to be funny in their mind it was like we're seeing vanilla ice you know this is gonna yeah, be a yeah, joke. yeah 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 they came out and it was rolling 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 and it was break stuff and it was nookie and it was just one right after another and people were like these guys are really good musicians and these songs sound amazing and I think so many people walked away from that going, I'm really glad I gave that a chance because that band still really, really rocks. I know, it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, oftentimes, and you've probably seen, you know, I'm sure you've noticed this many, many times over the years, you can't figure out why there's that public shift in perception, why one band is red hot and then all of a sudden they're over. Why are they not cool anymore? Why can we not like them anymore? But you know what? Talent, as you said, you know, quality, quality wins, quality rises to the top. And that was a great show. And it was, uh, I think people left very, very happy that stuck around to see Limp Biscuit. You wouldn't have expected that in 2019, but it was killer. 
Yeah, they've sort of, you know, it's kind of come full circle and back around. And I think a lot of the time, because they were so ubiquitous and huge and inescapable, I think sometimes that's why the tide turns. Is like, oh, this band, I can't escape them. They're everywhere. And people get annoyed with that. Like, they don't deserve to be as big as they are because, you know, whatever, they're not deemed worthy. And so that's why I think you get that backlash. But then all those years later, Scar has it a lot as well. And I've toured with a lot of these Scar bands. And obviously mm-hmm. all of them, well, most of them, if not all, obviously Boss Tones and Less Than Jake were from outside of California. But Goldfinger, Real Big Fish, Save Ferris, all those bands, all from Orange County. And at Interrupters. The t- interrupters keeping it fresh and bringing it up to date and breathing new life into it and again that was like one year 1996 97 you couldn't escape scar and then after then everybody's like oh scars naff scars rubbish but you go see any of those bands live today they still pack rooms they've still got a set full of hits and people still love those shows because it's just a good night out and you can't argue with that yeah it is funny i mean i was at k-rock long enough to see so many musicals um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, directions, I guess, or whatever. I mean, there was the like subgenres, really, right? Come and go. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned the ska, the ska revival that was very, very big. You know, we played all of those songs and all of those bands. And some of those bands that you know got real big back then, like Rancid, are still some of my favorite bands today. And I saw Adore, but I mean, I remember the Lilith Fair times when everything was, you know, was Jewel and Sarah McLaughlin and people, you know, kind of lady, uh, you know, lady artists like that. And then there was the, there was the really heavy times where there was, a, you know, we, we played a lot of Metallica and we played a lot of corn and stuff like that. There was the swing bands. Do you remember the swing band era? That lasted a, a hot minute. Yeah. That was, was around the, the film I, swingers, wasn't it? And you had like the cherry popping daddies and yes, real big fish, uh, was another one. I guess they kind of were both sky and swingy. Um, yeah, there were a whole bunch of those. They were really, really popular. It's just, it's so weird to see how cyclical it is. And there are times that are really, really good for alternative rock music, which I think is kind of our favorite. And then there are other times where, you you know, there's really nothing really exciting going on. You know, the most incredible thing, the most incredible time to be working at K-Rock during the three decades that I was there was obviously was the grunge era. Yeah. You know, when Nirvana came out, I mean, I don't think many of us don't remember the first time we heard Smells Like Teen Spirit because it was just so new and so different and just blew our minds with how good it was. It, it, I mean, were you old enough to hear that song when it came out and think of it was the greatest song you ever heard in your life, man? I wasn't exactly of age when it was immediately released, but I was okay. maybe two or three years behind. I probably first heard it in around 95, 96, so okay. a couple yeah. of years after it came out, but I certainly remember the first time I heard it and just an instant hook. Like, you're just drawn to it immediately, aren't you? It's an undeniable yeah. hit. And, uh, you know, and then having Soundgarden come out and then having Alice in Chains come out, and then, of course, there were, uh, you know, a million other bands that sort of, you know, kind of glommed on and tried to sound like that. But that first wave of grunge was such an unbelievably remarkable time to be working at K-Rock, too. I mean, we were just, we just felt like we were, you know, it was the most important music in the world, and it was exactly right in our wheelhouse. But, of course, there were lots of other times where pop radio was, you know, I'll give you a, a, a perfect example. You know, and when the NSYNC Backstreet Boys era, that's all people cared about. You know, yeah, those yeah, were yeah. the albums that were selling 10 million copies. And K-Rock couldn't get arrested during times like that. It just was the opposite of what was in. So, I mean, it's all cyclical. It all goes in waves and everything. But 
I love the. I do. I will say one thing about the streaming era that I I love is that you know so much. Not all, but a lot of that music is available to anybody who wants to go hear it. You know, there's so much phenomenal music history. There's so much great music being released today. But then imagine being 14 right now and having Spotify. You and I could never have dreamed of something like that when we were teenagers. But imagine being able to go and just listen to almost anything that had ever come before. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing. I don't think I'd ever leave my bedroom if I were a 14-year-old now with Spotify. Yeah, it's the double-edged sword, I think. I think the, the joy back in the day in Discovery was you'd have to save up that money and get that one CD. That was all you could get. And you'd, sure. li- you'd live with that, and you'd know those songs and words and every note inside out, and it became a fabric of your life. And that's gone, I think, now because of the oversaturation. So people, I think, can indeed dip in to any band, any genre, any period at the drop of a hat whenever they want. But I think gone is that absolute immersion in one record or one band and obviously as well because you can get everything at the touch of the button it's like is anything then special or or sacred i think you're absolutely right i think that there were albums that we listened to literally 200 times and knew every note in our head we knew when one song ended what the next song was and how it started because we'd heard the album so many times and you're right even albums you love now there's so much to listen to that you'll listen to it a few times, but then you're on to something else. It's very rare to, to really go back to something, you know, every week for a year like we used to. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's constantly evolving. Nothing ever stays the same. So, I, we, you know, we're just we're, kids today. Here we go again with Get Off My Lawn. Kids today are just so <laughs> lucky that it's so easy and so cheap to hear music because you're right. You and I were out mowing lawns trying to get money to buy that next record. Well, that's the other thing as well, Gene, is you know streaming has completely devalued music. And then because now there's not the money that there was in the music industry, that's why there's not the money that there was in the radio industry. And it's all mm-hmm. taken a hit because people back in the day actually used to go, oh, you know what? I like this album so much. I'm going to buy it. What a novel idea. And now it's like, I'm not going to pay. And albums are so cheap now. You can buy almost any album on on iTunes for like six ninety nine, And they'll go, right. oh, no, why would I buy it when I can just stream it for free? But then they'll go and pay five pounds for a coffee somewhere. That You know, right. you drink once and it's gone. It's so crazy. We had a conversation one time. You know, we were lucky enough to interview Trent Reznor many times over the years. And, you know, I do remember a specific conversation one day where he was talking about some battle he was in with his record company at the time, which was not infrequent for Trent. But he was he, he said the exact same thing you said, which is, I will work a year to get this album right, and somebody won't pay for it, yet they'll buy a $5 cup of coffee. I mean, he, he and it was understandable because this was his man hours. This was his sweat equity that was put into that work. You know, you wouldn't ask somebody to tell a field, you know, to grow food for a year and not pay for it. That's the fruit of his labor. And it really bothers him. And understandably so, it bothers him that he doesn't feel like he's getting what his music is worth. I mean, I'm sure he speaks for an awful lot of musicians who are in the same boat. I mean, it's gotten to the point where I'm sure there, there are lots of musicians who just have to quit because it's just not sustainable for them to do, do it as a living. I think as well, artists are less likely to invest a year of their life in these majestic pieces of work if they know that people aren't going to buy them. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence or, you know, just some haphazard uh, mistake that the lack of quality albums in recent years has in line with the rise in streaming services dipped 
and and decreased. But we could talk about that all day. I would love to. You mentioned Trent Reznor there, Gene. I'd like to just pull some random names out of the hat and just see if you have any. Because I would say, you know, if you could tell me about some interviews that stand out over the years, but that's obviously there's going to be way too many. So we'll try and focus it in and see if we can just pluck some K-Rock anecdotes out of you. Because, I mean, that station is so iconic. And I'll obviously talk about the station in the intro so people know if they don't know already what it's all about. So, you know, they're up to speed. Um, but just the the most worldwide iconic alternative station uh, and still probably is now, but certainly all the time you were there, it was kind of the, the king of town. And you must have seen all walks of life from the entertainment industry come through the doors. What about Paul Rubens, for a start, as Pee Wee Herman? Any, <laughs> any encounters with Pee Wee on the show? Yeah, we had Pee Wee on the show a number of times. I mean, he is delightful. He's so funny and just engaging and goofy. And yeah, he was terrific. We talked to him. One of the memorable times that we talked to him was not long after the, you know, the famous incident. Uh, uh, look it up, kids. And uh, <laughs> you know, even, even then, he had such. Well, first of all, it was ridiculous what they did. It was insane what they what they did to him. But even then, he was so funny and had such a great sense of humor about it. You know, he's a very, very talented artist. He really is unbelievably talented and unbelievably nice man. But yeah, just. You know, there's some people who are always a great interview, and you're always excited to talk to them. I mean, my favorite, not to break away from your list for a second, but if I can just say. Of course you can, yeah. The person you always want to interview, because it will always be a great time, because he genuinely is so engaged and so interested in what you're saying and really does the best he can to give you a, a good time is weird Al Yankovic. Well, he was going to no be next. He was going to be next on my list, Gene, because we Are spoke, we spoke about him briefly when I first met you and you were like, yeah, I know weird Al. Cause I, I think I'd seen a picture on your Instagram of you and him. And I was like, Oh, you know, you know, weird Al. So yeah, carry on. But he's one of my all time favorite interviews as well. He, I interviewed him twice and he was a delight both times. He's, that's the only word. He's just a delight. And I, uh, you know, I posted a photo of him recently because it was just the one year anniversary just passed of the last time I saw him. I went to see his most recent tour when it was in Seattle. I happened to be there and he had me backstage and we chatted and he knew I was moving to England and he promised he'd come to England <laughs> sometime. He doesn't want me to be without my weird Al for too long. So at some point he'll be back. But he's just, there are a few people who, I don't want to name drop here, but Bono, who I'm sure you've spoken with, is another one who always makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. You know what I mean? He's not looking past you to find out who's next or what he's going to be doing afterwards. You have his complete attention, and he does everything he can to contribute to the conversation. And that's what Weird Al is like. He's just a nice – you will never, ever hear anybody say anything less than Weird Al is the nicest person they've ever met. And that's the, every, you know, every fan of his who's ever met him has come back with the same report. Just genuinely the greatest guy in the world. So, yeah, God bless him. And, by the way, here we're spending all this time just talking about how wonderful he is as a human. What he's accomplished as an artist is absolutely remarkable. When you consider especially how many people have tried to do comedy, for comedy music, no one's ever come close to, to, to what Weird Al has done. And he survived for almost 40 years in this business, far outlasting so many of the artists that he's parodied. 
and he's just a genius when he comes to it. And you've seen him live, Matt, I hope? Yeah, he's only toured the UK once, and it was in 2012 or 13. And I, mm-hmm. I, he came into the studios at Kerrang! in the day, and we had a chat face-to-face. We'd done a phoner in the lead-up to the tour. He came in for a mm-hmm. face-to-face, and then I went to the show that night as well. And it was just incredible, because he's got such a wealth of visual material to pull from as well, because he's been in so many pop cultural you know, TVs, yeah. TV shows and movies. So for all his costume changes, he would, you know, dip out backstage to get changed into whatever was next, the Eat It suit or whatever. And then he'd be playing clips from like The Simpsons. And, and you just realize like this guy is an institution, isn't he? He's a cultural institution in America. And he's often well, bigger than the artists that he parodies, as you say, like he's outlived so many of them. Of course he has. And I have uh, tried very hard to get petitions going get him to play the halftime of the Super Bowl. I don't think the NFL will ever be smart enough to make that decision happen. But who doesn't love Weird Al? How great would it? Because that's, a, for folks who don't know, that's the biggest sporting event of the year in America. And the halftime show is one of the most watched television events of the year. And, you know, usually they get a major artist. They'll get a, you know, they'll get a Tom Petty RIP or they'll get a Bruce Springsteen or they'll get a Beyonce or something like that. But Weird Al, halftime of the Super Bowl, that's the show America needs. Amen. And you know he'd kill it as well. You know he'd come up with some great like stage design. And... Yes! Be killer. All right, who's next on your list? Next on the list is Jim Carrey. Um, I haven't spoken much with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, it's a shame, too, because this kidding show that he stars in now is one of my favorite comedies of the last five years. I love it so much. I haven't read his book yet, though. Have you? No, I listened to his chat on Mark Maron, and I was sold on it. I've actually ordered it a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, and he, he comes across like such a deep, beautiful human, like just yeah. a, a real wise, spiritual, interesting character. Well, I like what I like about him is exactly what you've described is he is a deep thinker. He's someone who spends a lot of time thinking about his place in the world, his place in the universe and all of our places in the world. I, I like him a lot. Haven't had a lot of interaction with him since the early days. You know, we certainly would have had him on a bunch back in the mask days and things like that, but not much in recent years. So I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have much for you there. That's okay. I'm just pulling out the hat. As I said, I wasn't guaranteed to be a hundred percent hit rate. What about uh, any of those kind of iconic comedians from the the sort of the hell raising years like the uh the sam kinnison's or the george carlin's or the we andrew had, dice clays had them all had uh, spent multiple times with uh, uh who did you say in the middle uh, we had sam kinnison on a couple of times who'd you say after that george carlin george carlin every time he did a tour we had him on and he was so remarkable i mean you can tell how word precise he is if you watch his comedy on stage but he is that organized in his thoughts extemporaneously as an interviewee as well. And it's a little bit humbling when you're asking questions and you're just a Yahoo DJ and you've got this guy who's, who's answering you in complete paragraphs that sound like he's spent a month working on them. They're so perfect and so smart and so witty and so pithy. I mean, the guy was just an absolute genius. And he made, he was so frustrated with the world with stupidity in the world yeah but he made it so funny he really did i mean chris rock is another one who's very similar chris rock can make you laugh at how dumb you are <laughs> you know how dumb you and your friends are he can make you laugh at it and they're both just really really genius guys but yeah george carlin was always so much fun to have on we got really lucky that a lot of the 
major comedians of today, you know, Mark Barron is one for, for a lot of years, you know, uh, Joe Rogan never did any radio except our show. We were the literally the only radio show for whatever reason he liked us and would love coming in. He just didn't want to do it. And then of course he got to the point where he didn't need to because he had his own microphone in his house for, you know, for to reach everyone in the world. Um, <laughs> Uh, Mark Marin uh, was the you know was the same way. Uh, Bob uh, Bill Burr is another guy we had on dozens of times throughout the years. He's so um, fucking funny, isn't he, Bill Burr? He's incredible. <laughs> he just is incredible. And we always had a fake faux feud. Like I would always, when he would come in, I would always say something that was like a little bit of a backhanded compliment, say, or a little, you know, just a little bit of throwing a tiny bit of shade at him, which would be kind of funny. And he would always just pick up and like, why do I come in here? And he would just <laughs> rail on me and make fun of me and everything. It was just so fun. People used to really look forward to it because they knew that he was going to just totally dig into me. But those guys, man, those those people who get to be comedians at that level, the kinds of comedians that can play arenas, they are really, really special talents. I mean, they are. It's more than just they come up with jokes. Yeah, I mean, they well, are. They're cultural really, critics, aren't they? And they're philosophers, and they're, yeah, yeah, they're philosophers. That's exactly that's a great way to put it. They're just really, really smart guys, and uh, you know, I I couldn't in a million years I, I couldn't do that. You know, we did a. We did a charity event every year on my morning show called April Foolishness, where we would get, you know, six, eight, I think one year we overbooked and had 10, but just comedians. Uh, and it would be a night for with raising money for charity. And it, it's just, it's unbelievable how good these guys are. You know, Bob Saget, a phenomenal comedian. I don't know if people know that or not, but Bob Saget is a great comedian. Do you know Brad Williams? Are you familiar with Brad? I don't think so, no. Oh, he's, in, I mean, he's incredible. He's one of the funniest guys you've ever met in your life. He's also a little person, and that's been become a big part of his act, and he is hilarious. <laughs> you know, but we had, you know, we had people like, uh, uh, you know, Eddie Izzard, you know, who would headline, or people like that. A lot of the names we've talked about. I mean, it's just, it was so fun. As, as much appreciation as I have for music and seeing how talented those musicians are, and you can really tell the difference between the bands that are great and the bands that are just so-so, you know. And when they and there's a reason a lot of times bands become successful because they're really good musicians. It's the same thing with comedians. You can tell the reason why these are the cream of the crop, why these have raised, you know, have risen to the level where they can sell out huge arenas, is because they really are that good. And it was just, it was such a joy. I think we did it eleven or twelve years before I left. Uh, just every every April to be able to be, you know stage left and be able to watch these craftsmen and the way they the way they can turn a crowd it's just a it's a miracle i mean they're so talented ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Were you live for four hours every day? How many hours was the show? Four and a half. We did 5.30 a.m. to 10 a.m., which I know is a, considered a very long show here in Britain. The breakfast shows here tend to start around 6.30 or 7, so... I'm a little bit jealous. I don't know how we ended up getting up so early, but that was the norm back then. And that amount of time every day to fill with engaging content and it's live as well. That's it's exhausting, isn't it? You have the adrenaline pushing you through, but you can't wing that kind of a, a show. And so how mentally demanding was the day to day in and out planning and execution of a show like that? That's, you know, the most sort of celebrated and revered and enjoyed breakfast show at that time on, on, on the airwaves, right? You were the guys. So you well, know, you know the pressure's on to deliver. Sure. I won't ever compare what we did to people who do actual work. If there's one thing we've learned in 2020, it's to respect our, our carers and our first responders and our police and our, uh, our people who are really doing serious work that means life or death. I'll never comp complain about an entertainment job. When never. It, you know, no. when, it, when you put it in contrast to real hardworking people. But I will say it was it's mentally very, 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 very bad. <laughs> it's very bad for you. It really is. It's a, um, it's a, it, there's so many hours to fill 22 and a half a week that the pressure is on all the time to incorporate anything and everything in your life into the show. So it's not like, you, you know, there were people who think, oh my gosh, you're done by 10 a.m.? What a sweet gig. But they don't realize that the clock starts ticking as soon as you turn off the microphone at 10 a.m. till the next show. Yeah. And you now are, on, now you, your job is to figure out a way to fill the next four and a half hours. So the one thing, and my wife would be happy to back me up on this, is it is a 24-7 job in that you never actually get to forget about it. You have to spend a lot of time coming up with material. And also, you know, especially a guest-heavy show like ours, every single day there's a movie to watch or there's a book to read or there's research to do online or albums to list or whatever it is to be prepped for whatever the you know the next series of guests are so you have that on top of all of the comedy and all the personal stuff i mean there's no such thing as a personal story that somehow doesn't end up making it up on you know on the radio if it's uh, if it's interesting and i think that's one of the reasons like we talked about earlier that's one of the reasons why people bond so much why people consider that voice coming out of their speaker as an actual friend a human being that they know is because when you're doing that kind of show, you really do share a lot with your listeners and they know you and they know your wife and they know your pets and they know if you have kids or you're in the hospital, you lose a parent or any number of other human conditions that we all go through. You know, they really do follow the story and they, uh, and they're, you know, to answer your question, I'm sorry for rambling, but Not at all. it's a full, 
it's a full-time, uh, I mean, it really, really is a full-time job and you cannot just show up and wing it. You can't. I mean, yeah, you, there are certainly people who are hungover and do wing it for a day, but you're not going to have any kind of long lasting success. If that's, uh, if that's your regular MO, that's for sure. What about the toll on your mental health and how do you, you know, maintain a, a healthy lifestyle and a healthy outlook on the world, like well-being and self-preservation? How does that factor into, you know, the longevity and not burning out when you're doing a gig like that? I uh, appreciate you asking that question. And especially, Matt, since it's coming from you, somebody who has had more than his share of mental health challenges this year. It does turn you upside down a little bit when you start to question your place in the world. I mean, there were certainly times where I, you know, there were certainly times where I thought, wow, this is really fantastic that so many people are responding so well to the work that I'm doing. And I feel like I'm really making an impact because I would hear from so many people that would say, you know, I went through a bad time. I had a relative sick or whatever, or uh, God forbid I lost a child or whatever. And you won't believe this, but your show was the only thing that got me through or the only re- way I was able to laugh. So you hear things like that and you go, man, I'm really doing something that matters. But for whatever reason, and your brain doesn't let you just accept good news and gratitude, for whatever reason, there has to be a voice in your head that says, but you're really not doing anything that's important and you really are just wasting your time and you're really just sitting around telling dick jokes and what are you really doing with your life and who are you really helping? And those thoughts do creep into you and you do have to fight those back. You know, I don't know if that's exactly what was on my mind, but a couple of years ago, even though I was somebody who never took a sick day for physical health the entire time I worked at K-Rock, a couple of years ago, I started getting anxious and upset and worried about the show. And I got to the point where I didn't think I could do it anymore, Matt. And I haven't really spoken much about this. But I mean, I started to have a real loss of confidence that I could do it. Like, I'm going to go on tomorrow and turn on the mic and I'm not going to have anything to say. I'm out. I don't have anything to say. And it got to the point where I felt like I needed to take a break. And I did. And I basically called into the show and then called into the superiors of the show. And I said, look, I need some time off. I am vomiting before I go on the air. That's how anxious I am about doing the show. And I can't really explain why, but it's real. And I need to address it because I'm really worried about my health. And they were terrific about giving me the time off. And I think I was away from the show for... I don't remember. I think it was five or six weeks or something like that. And it's it was decompression is what it was. And it was the opportunity to kind of reconnect with a normal life, with a non-radio life. And I think I needed it. You know, I, I used to wonder about these people. You know, you see Howard Stern or somebody like that or in this country, you know, superstars like Chris Evans. And they're taking you know, eight, 10, 12 weeks off in a year sometimes, you're like, come on, mate, show up for work once in a while. But I'm not going to question that anymore because I think there are sometimes people really, if they can, if they have a job where they can do that, I think they really do need that because they do need to refill the well sometimes. I think I got, I think I just, I did get exactly what you said. I think I got burned out and I needed a chance to re-energize. And it got to the point where I felt so much better and I started to miss doing the show and missing the audience. And they were fantastic. I was upfront about it on the radio and told them ahead of time that that's what I was going to do. And I am really glad that I was honest with them and addressed that 
rather than just make something up or not give a reason because so many people responded with, I know how you're feeling and I've been there too. And I heard from people who said, I'm going to do the same thing or I'm going to take better care of myself or address my mental health issues more. And you kind of given me the courage to do that because you were willing, brave enough to do it on the air. So I'm really, really glad that I came clean with that. And I was really, really glad I took that time off because when I came back, I was energized and ready to go. And it was not long after that, uh, even though I was happy to be back, that I thought, you know what? I'm coming up on 30 years next year. That's about the time where I started thinking about making the decision to end the show on my own terms because nobody lasts forever. You stick around long enough, eventually you're going to be fired. So uh, shortly after I came back, I said, I'm happy to be back and I'm healthy and I'm happy, but I'm going to leave at the end of next year. So it was really, it ended up being a a big deal. Uh, Leaving for that uh, temporary did turn into me leaving permanent. But I left healthy and happy and feeling like I left at the right time. I'd love to learn a little bit about the dynamic between you and Kevin, um, because when you're in a partnership for that long, and I did, I did a breakfast show for a year, so you know that's a tiny fraction of the time that you did. But I learned in that short space of time that when you start every day with one person and you're sharing really the highs and the lows of life in a very intimate way, both on air and off the air, and I mean, I can't even imagine. Talk us through, if you can, the the dynamic and the nature of a relationship and a partnership like that after thirty years of on air, just shared experiences of every kind. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's kind of hard to speak about because it was, you know, one of the most significant relationships of my life. You know, you ultimately spend as much time with that person as you do with your spouse, just in terms of minutes spoken to each day. Um, You know, we both went through so many regular life changes, you know, marriages and divorces, and he had kids and, you know, just all sorts of, uh, he had his own health issues, and I had uh, mine certainly. And I think that we, we were never super close friends, but I think that that was good for us. I think that helped us because we saved it for the air. We didn't talk a lot off the air. I've said in interviews before that if Kevin gets into a car accident, I don't want to hear about it until we go on the air the next day. Like, I don't want to be the guy that he calls in real life to tell me about it because I'd rather save it for on the air. And I think that's kind of how we were is we knew that we entertained each other so much and we knew that what we had to say was interesting to the other so often that we saved as much of the relationship as we could to on the radio. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to interview so many people and to be on the radio throughout my career, even pre-K-Rock with so many other people, but no one cracked me up like Kevin did. And we had such similar senses of humor. And I don't know, you know, when you're in an improv situation, which is what live radio is, it's like, you know, I compare it to jazz musicians, you know, you put the right group of people together and they're able to, even though they've never played that song before, they're able to build something live and work off of each other. And that was the remarkable magic of Kevin and Bean. You know, when we got inducted into the uh, Radio Hall of Fame just last year, um, I remember saying in my speech, I'm like, you know, it it was destined to be that he and I met each other at a radio station in Phoenix, Arizona in 1988. There's no way we ever could have planned it. It just was meant to be because we were meant to be on the radio together. And I know it's to, you know, to his internal credit as a great broadcaster and 
certainly, you know, I consider myself so lucky that we crossed paths and were able to make such a goal of it. But it's a really, really special relationship. And, you know, we still, we still, we texted today. Today we texted, you know, we haven't had done the show, you know, together for you know, almost a year now. And he texted me about something today and I wrote him back. Hey, have you seen Ted Lasso yet? Matt, have you seen Ted Lasso? Do you know what Ted Lasso is? No. Ted Lasso is a new show on Apple Plus that right, starred right, right. Jason Sudeikis. And he plays a college football coach in America, American football, college football, who gets hired to coach a Premier League team and moves to England and doesn't know anything about our football at all and has to learn how to coach a Premier League team with all of the egos that are involved in that. I've seen the trailers for it. It's a very, very funny show. And Kevin is a huge footy fan. I mean, like the biggest. Like he goes to all the World Cup games and he comes to Barcelona a couple times a year. That's his team. And uh, I just knew that he would love it. So even all these months later, I still see something and I think, ooh, I've got to tell Kevin. Ordinarily, I would have brought it up on the air and we would have had a laugh about it. We would have gone through it and talked about it. I would have brought in clips and we would have made a thing out of it. But now we're just doing it on the text. You know, we're just old guys without a show now. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you this. When things are going on in the world, because obviously you're dealing with real life events you know, outside of your life, like the world as they unfold. If it's not too heavy to get into, you mentioned it earlier on. How do you respond to something like 9-11 on air? As it's, as it's happening, because I can only begin to imagine the difficulty that you have to, you know, I mean, there's so many things to take into account and you want to be so respectful and you need to get the tone just right. How do you go about approaching something like that, as heavy as that, live? Yeah, we had a lot of those kinds of incidents over the years, as you can imagine, a lot of those, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing and 9-11 and obviously the death of so many of our people, you know, I mean, you're on the radio when find out Kurt Cobain dies, you know, those sorts of things happen. And I mean, I think that comes with experience. You know, I certainly would not have wanted to be 20 and tried to handle any of those. But I think you've got a trust built up with your audience and they understand that you are speaking extemporaneously and they understand that you are speaking from the heart. And I think you just have to share with them. And so many instances you know, I think back to 9-11 is a great example, but like, you know, the Rodney King riots, if you remember those when Los Angeles almost burned down, yeah. you know, after that trial and the OJ verdict and so many other things that happened in Southern California, you really want to give people the opportunity to vent. And I think that that is really, really important is your audience wants to, they need somebody to talk to. They need somebody to talk their feelings through. And I, you know, I wasn't on for the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. And I really, I feel like I, I wish I were because it's so important and I had a lot to say about it. And more importantly, I wanted to learn how other people saw it and feel what other people felt. I would have loved it if I would have been in an environment where I could have talked to 100 of my African-American listeners in a row to hear their stories because their stories have not been shared as widely as they should. I mean, I feel like so many people are just now hearing it, just now waking up and hearing what the lives have been like for so many disenfranchised people. And I think it's, a, you know, to answer your question more succinctly, I think it's a two-way street. I mean, I think you know, the person on the radio is as honest as he can be to share what he's feeling. And I think you need to be an open receptacle for them to call and tell you how they're feeling. And I think you heal together and you learn together and you get through it together. 
Did you were you on air for the Me Too movement when all of that began? Oh sure. Oh yeah. And we were lucky on our show that we also had a woman on our program who is a very, very strong, strong woman with a lot of opinions about a lot of things. And, you know, none of this was a surprise to her, certainly. Yeah. And, you know, the stories from women, just like the stories from, you know, minorities are are can be shocking to a sheltered white person to realize what they have to deal with. And our friend Allie McKay, who was on the show with us, she did a lot, I think, to educate not only our listeners, but to educate us by reframing things for us when there was one old way to look at it. And now, thanks to her experience and her intelligence, we're able to look at it another way. And again, it kind of comes down to just people being willing to listen to each other and learn, too. And I think that's, I think, you know, in this polarization age that we're in, very much so in America with conservatives versus liberals, but, you know, increasingly more here in Britain, it's becoming nastier and nastier, you know, between the various parties here. I think so many people have their blinders up now where they feel like I know, I know what I think, and this is my position and I don't need to or care to hear what anybody else has to say. I feel like there's so much of that going on that people just aren't even listening to the other side anymore. Yeah. Don't even want to know what your position or perspective is. And that is, that's damaging. I, I ultimately that's damaging for everybody. Yeah. The dialogue needs to be open, doesn't it? You need to be able to hear the other point of view to, you know, expand on your own and, and learn and, sympathize and empathize and grow and mm -hmm. yeah and it's really hard for me i mean i'm saying that and i don't want to appear hypocritical but I, I will tell you though there are people who i there are people who i've been friends with for decades who are conservatives and i've always had respect for them they've always voted republican and i understand their reasons why but i will tell you that something has changed with this current republican administration because yeah i don't think donald trump's behavior is defensible as a person or as a president. So it has, you know, I certainly have been the victim of these stories that you hear about, about friendships and families who have trouble talking to one another because they're coming from so different perspectives. I mean, even if you are a dyed-in-the-wool, lifelong, only-vote Republican, I don't understand how you can still support Donald Trump. And he still has, you know, 40-something percent of the electorate still says they support him. And I just... I, I'm not sure how close I can be to those people, Pat, to be honest. I don't think I want to get in a long car ride with some of those people who are at this point are still staunch supporters of the president. How do you see the next election panning out? I think uh, I interviewed somebody not long ago, and he was a podcast host, and I can't remember who he was, but he says the only poll that matters is election day. Any other poll that leads up to that is not going to tell you how it's going to come out. It's all such guesswork, and there are so many variables involved that it's a fool's errand to try to predict. I mean, I saw one scenario on TV today that showed it could be down to Wisconsin. I mean, literally, if things break the president's way on some of these states that he's on the fence with, like Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, states like that, that he may or may not win – if he gets those states, ultimately the entire presidential election for 2020 might just come down to the electoral votes from the state of Wisconsin. And that might only be the difference of a few thousand votes like it was in 2016. So it's kind of, a, I don't, I'm not really in the prediction business here. Obviously, I think that Donald Trump has done a tremendous amount of damage to the country internally and our, and the country's status around the world. I can't even imagine how emboldened he would be 
you know, when you look at all the norms he's thrown out in his first term, I can't imagine how much more toward authoritarianism he would he would head in his second term. I just don't think America. I, I won't say America won't survive it. That sounds so dramatic. But you know, most democracies don't last as long as the United States has. There's no guarantee that it lasts forever, and we're creeping a lot of very very dangerous directions. So. I'm just hoping that Uncle Joe pulls it out. Not that I'm the hugest Joe Biden fan in the world either. I think there are a lot of people, especially Democrats, who had other candidates that they would have preferred. But Joe's the candidate we have, and he's the only one on the ballot who has the opportunity to win. So I think people need to vote for him if they can. Yeah, it's not worth thinking about, is it, how hopeless and frustrated and angry and heartbroken and and all the other negative terms people will feel if old Orange Face does win. It'll be awful. Well, I, um, you know, I remember you talk about those difficult conversations. Uh, we were on the air the day after Election Day, and, you know, the country was stunned that Donald Trump had, you know, pulled out the upset and was now the president. And I remember kind of trying to pep talk the people in on my show in the room and also the people on the radio listening. I tried to pep talk them up by saying, look, America has had terrible presidents before. I knew he was going to be a terrible president. There was no other possible outcome. I said, America's had awful presidents before, but we're a strong country with a system of checks and balances, and we will survive this. And I think I was being overly generous because checks and balances very quickly fell apart. Yeah. Uh, you know, the he had so many enablers that lined up to allow him to do anything that he wanted to with no oversight. Uh, it's insane that he wasn't convicted during his impeachment, for instance. I mean, that's what the impeachment, that's what the impeachment process is for, is for obvious violations of the presidential oath. That's, that person has to leave office. So clearly those checks and balances just fell apart. And I was wrong on how strong the democracy was. But I do think we have the opportunity, and I say we as if I live there. I don't. But do I, you miss living there, Jane? I think that America has the opportunity to right the ship a little bit. Um, it's funny you should ask that. I um, I was so excited to move back to England, and I love being here, and my intention is to stay here for the rest of my life. Are there things about America I miss? Yes, there are. There's a lot of food that I miss that you can't <laughs> buy here. Just brands of things that you're used to that you've been eating your whole life that all of a sudden are scarce that you can't find anymore. Uh, I miss that. Um, I've been, of course, I miss the people. You know, I have friends and I have family and there's certainly people I miss. I'm glad to be out of there. I said at the time I was leaving in one of my exit interviews, I said, I just want to get the hell out of America before the Civil War. And I kind of feel like that wasn't much of an exaggeration because it has looked like from from these shores, it has looked like America has been undergoing a civil war for the past year, year and a half or so. So I do feel like I dodged some of that at least. But um, I'll always love America. You know, my father was an American serviceman. I'll always be patriotic about America and respect America. It's sad for me to see what it's going through. But it's also sad for me to see what England is going through. This isn't the country it was 10 years ago as well. I mean, I think a lot of us are heading in, you know, heading in new directions, Matt. Yeah, it's it's certainly a period of change, isn't it? And not all of that change yes. is good, but you know, not all change is always easy, is it? Sometimes change is hard. No, you're absolutely right. But you know what's really comforting, and I and I sense we're winding down here, so I just want to get this point out. What's really comforting is we can still believe, for the most part, in people. And I do believe, despite the morons we see on the news doing various things, 
whether elected or not. I do still basically believe in the goodness of people. I do think that if I had a, if I was driving down, you know, the M25 and got a flat tire, I think somebody would stop to help me. You know, I think if you turned up without your wallet and we're trying to get a cup of coffee, someone would give you a cup of coffee. You know, I do think that basically we look out for each other. Basically people are good. And I think I need to think that um, because, you know, there's a lot, there's so much negativity in the news right now that I think we have to have something positive to believe in. And I'm just going to believe that people are basically good. Am I wrong about that? Do you think? No, you're a hundred percent right. And what I found with being out and about, you know, because when we are in lockdown, all you see is social media and the news. And if that's all you're mm-hmm. going on, you're going to think, oh, the world's doomed. Everybody's awful. But actually, once mm-hmm. you get outside, once you're allowed to and it's safe to and you're still distancing, but you're out there and you're engaging with real people in the real world, you're reminded and you're reassured that actually people are essentially decent and we're all in this thing together and don't believe everything you see and read online or on the TV. I think that's a wonderful note to leave on. I really do. That's very encouraging. And by the way, I'm so glad that we got a chance to chat because I I feel now like a terrible friend that I have not subscribed to your Patreon page. I feel like I now should do that because I do support what you're doing and I want you to be able to continue to make a living doing what you're doing. And I hope it's not too long before things open up and you're able to start doing some of these gigs again, some of these things that you miss so much and also make some money doing it. Amen to that, Gene. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. What a lovely chat. And I reckon we should talk more in the future about doing something else together because I think, uh, I think there's something here. I would love it. I had such a good time. Congratulations on the podcast. Keep doing the good work. All right, man. They see me mowing my front lawn. I know they're all thinking I'm so wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Can't you see I'm wide and nerdy? Look at me, I'm wide and nerdy. I wanna roll with the gangsters. They're so far they all think I'm too wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.